technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today. And we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... Gen Z's not too keen on Industry 4.0. My 13-year-old daughter doesn't care. And the conversations that I've had with my peers, I don't think any of us are like, you know, you know what I really want my carrier to have 5G. No, what I want my carrier to have is a way that I can cancel my plan through an app so I don't have to go in the store and wait three hours. What I want my carrier to have is forgiveness. If I, for, you know, if I miss a deadline to pay a bill and so I don't get fined, what I want my carrier to have is a cheaper plan for students. Like those are the things that I think people care about, not some brand of technology that we don't quite understand. You're listening to the Futurismic podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. day madman that Don Draper would respect. Draper would also check his ID before offering a scotch. Ziad Ahmed is the 20-something CEO of Juve Consulting, and he knows how to talk to the kids today, and we're not talking millennials. For Gen Z, born in the mid-1990s to the early 2010s, the internet has always existed. It's been fast, and it's been evolving. From entertainment to telecom, we learn why marketing to this demographic can't rely on an approach best left to the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, I think the major thing that people get wrong in terms of marketing to Gen Z is that they believe that their assumptions about us are correct, that their cursory understanding based on seeing young people on their phones is enough to understand how to market to us, and that large research reports and the offhand intermittent focus group are sufficient to understand such a complicated and powerful generation. And I think beyond that, we're frustrated oftentimes to see people uh, assume that Gen Z is a monolith and assume that we're all the same. And I think that's true of all groups, that when we talk about them oftentimes, it's much easier to paint with broad strokes. And I think that that is a really toxic and dangerous way to look at marketing in the world. And I think we need to have diverse young people have a seat at the table if meaningful work is going to be done. Uh, And I also think that people oftentimes discount uh, Gen Z and our power or are skeptical of um, our knowledge or information because of our youth instead of really accepting and acknowledging that because of the access to information that we have, we are reading and learning constantly and are so tuned in to the suffering that's happening in our world today. And subsequently, our worldview has been shaped around that. And we are as purpose-driven as we are because we have to be, right? Uh, We are young and we are looking at the future of our world and country uh, and saying, things don't have to be this way, right? And things don't have to be this way just because they've been this way. And we are gonna do what we can to make tomorrow better. Uh, And I hope more and more, I think it's happening, adults uh, and older generations look at us and say, you know, they're not entitled. They are dreaming and making those dreams come true. And that's what we need more of. You say that it's a complicated and powerful generation. Yeah. How so? Yeah. I mean, I think that we are, you know, a generation that's 32% of the world's population, making us the largest generational cohort in the world. And certainly we are complicated in geography, right? And that what it is to be me who was born in Princeton, New Jersey, and now splits my time between New Haven and New York is vastly different than someone, you know, who's living in Wuhan, China right now, for example, right? And I think that geography always is a complicating factor in terms of context and reality. And then furthermore, I think that it's complicated because 
so much of our generation in our power derives from social media, but social media is a double-edged sword, right? Uh, for some of us, it has been this incredibly empowering vehicle, you know, to find ourselves and our communities and to make change. And for other ones of us, social media has been a really toxic force uh, that has really made us doubt ourselves and, you know, experience FOMO and really really, you know, in some cases, uh, experience severe mental health problems because of social media. And I think for most of us, perhaps, it's both. You know, it is simultaneously this ecosystem that has become our whole world that is empowering and beautiful and necessary and also toxic and draining and, you know, this compare culture that is can be really, really dangerous to our psyche. And so I think we're complicated and nuanced because of that. Uh, because it's not clear that we land one way or another on the question. Um, and I think our power is, you know, we are the largest national cohort in the world. We, you know, influence well over $600 billion in familial spending. We, uh, you know, are those born from ages 9 to, you know, were those born after 1996 to around those born in 2010 and 2012, making your youngest generation's year around 9 and your older generation's year around 23 or 24. And what that means is that every middle schooler, high schooler, and college student right now is a Generation Z. And I fundamentally, fundamentally believe that middle school girls set the trends of every generation, right? They knew Musical.ly and Justin Bieber were hot long before we did. And I think that power is tremendous, that we are not speculating about youth culture, speculating about culture. We are living it and setting it. And people should not be sleeping on that. Okay, I've got a middle school girl. You do. Who I guess is setting the trend. Yes, she's 13 going on 19. Is she on TikTok? She's not on TikTok. As a matter of fact, she's very much against TikTok. Why is that? Um, she thinks it's just for the cliquey girls, the pretty girls, the the ones who are the mean girls, basically, mm-hmm. in, in any given cohort. And, and maybe that's not true, but that's a perception that she carries with her. Interesting. Interesting. So then help me understand how the consumption of content by those born between 96 and 2010 is different than that of millennials or, or, or Gen X. You know, what, what is my middle school girl trend setting? Certainly, I mean, she would be the outlier in the case of uh, TikTok, right? Uh, TikTok has well over at this point, um, you know, 600 billion users, 600 million users rather, and is rapidly, rapidly growing. And there's speculations that, you know, they're going to hit a billion very, very soon. Um, and the 60% of TikTok users are Generation Zers, and the vast majority of the biggest TikTokers are like 15-year-old, 16-year-old girls and boys, right? Uh, you know, Charlie D'Amelio is the biggest TikToker in the world who Gen Zers are talking about every single day in our colloquial conversations, and she's a random 15-year-old high school girl from Connecticut. And that's the norm right now, right? And Charlie D'Amelio makes one video of a dance, and now and then suddenly hundreds of thousands of people are replicating that same dance and video to that same audio track. Uh, and that power is tremendous. And so when I go on TikTok as a 21-year-old and I spend quite a bit of time on TikTok, the vast majority of influencers that I'm looking at, like because the, the, or, I don't follow people, right? The algorithm just automatically serves you up content, are high schoolers, right? Are young kids. Um, and they are setting trends. And the bill, you know, that the top 50 songs on uh, Spotify right now, the vast majority of them, from not maybe not the majority, but at least a sizable percentage of them, are songs that have blown up through TikTok. The number one song is, right? Uh, 
Uh, and so TikTok is really deciding what issues we talk about, you know, what trends we are leaning into, what songs we're listening to. And it's not the 20-year-olds who are setting those trends. It is the 15-year-olds. It is the 14-year-olds. Um, and our consumption, you know, Generation Z spends nine hours a day online, four hours of which digitally multitasking. Our attention span is eight seconds. How do you get the attention of a Gen Z when their attention span is eight seconds? How, how, and then, I suppose more importantly, how do you keep that attention? What we always say is, and, and, you know, I, I spend a lot of time working with Fortune 500 clients and clients of all sorts asking that question and answering that question. You know, if Gen Z is, has so much oversaturated content to choose from and it, you only have eight seconds to grab their attention, how do you do it? And what I tell my clients is mean what you say and show up for it. Right. I think that what cuts through the noise are things that are true, are things that are real. There are three ways, in my view, to go viral, right? It's doing something new and novel, doing something provocative, and doing something that gives somebody something. And I want my clients to do all three of those things, to do something new, to do something bold and big and brave, and to give people something and to be giving. And I think when we make content that tells stories of in-between moments that we know are true because we're living them, but that no one's telling, I think that's the content that we can't stop watching. Um, and I think TikTok is a really resident example of this because it is making jokes about life experiences that young people share that older folks would have never known about because they're not talking to us, but that we can make videos about and then they blow up because we're like, wow, we're all living the same life, LOL, right? And we're telling stories that are true, but that no one's telling, that we all share and can commiserate about. And I think that we can create better content and have a better media landscape when we trust those closest to a reality on the expert on that reality and tell stories that haven't been told before and do so in a really authentic way uh, with call to actions that really show up for what we say. What is that call to action, though? Because, you know, the the bullshit meter of a Gen Z yeah. is just as finely tuned as it is of a millennial yeah, more i would say i would say it's more more yeah i'd say our bullshit filter is more finally tuned it has to be right we're 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 that much more oversaturated with content and choice and etc and um certainly we have this bullshit filter where we tune out most of the advertisements that we see in, in, in most thing in a lot of the content that we see and we're very very good at using the internet very quickly and the call to action yeah a lot of it, a lot of the times we will say it's bullshit but i think we won't when it's patagonia Right, and Patagonia has been standing up for the environment and saying it's true to who they are and their product and their story forever. And so when they give donations and do campaigns around environmental justice and advocacy, we believe it and it's true and it resonates and we share it because it's true to who they are and they're showing up for it. It wasn't forcing themselves into an issue they didn't understand, that they didn't know, that was popular at that moment. It was saying, we stand for this and stand for this always, and we're going to keep showing up for it. And I think that's what we want all brands to do, is to know their why and to keep showing up for it consistently and repeatedly and to do so in bold and disruptive and innovative ways. Um, and I think everyone has the capacity to do that. But first, clients and companies must answer the question, why do I do what I do? And I think a lot of people haven't seriously thought about that question, and I think we can only really even be authentic once we have the answer to that question. Are Gen Z consumers loyal? Are they fickle? If, if the attention span is only eight seconds and it gets you get you get their attention by way of authenticity and by speaking to them directly, does that create a lasting bond or is it more like, you know, the dog from up? Huh. Ooh, squirrel. So, yeah, I mean, I think we definitely have brand loyalty in some ways, but less so. 
um, than some previous generations. It, it's more interest. It, it's more complicated. I would say um, what you have are people who our attention spends eight seconds, yes, but we also have the capacity to pay attention for hours and hours and hours, right, on Netflix and et cetera. It's not that we can only pay attention for eight seconds. It's that eight seconds is how long we give something to earn our attention. But mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, our brand affinity, you know, my dad only wore New Balance sneakers, still only wears New Balance sneakers, right? Like, we don't make decisions like that to have this, like, bizarre affinity to one company that we really can't even quite articulate for the most part. Um, that's not necessarily true in all cases, right? Like, many of us are super loyal to Apple, right? For example, like we can't even imagine migrating away from the Apple ecosystem, but that's not necessarily even because we love the brand so much. It's like the ecosystem is so powerful that we cannot escape it, right? That to leave iMessage, to leave every all the things sinking would just be impractical. But in terms of more like consumer product goods and retail and et cetera, I think that what you see is that we are quite willing to change and, 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 and we don't have super long brand loyalty, but when we love a brand, we really love it. So it's not like, oh, we like passively have brand loyalty. Like I'm wearing Vejas right now. I wear my Vejas every day. They're like, you know, environmentally sustainable sneakers from Europe and that, that are really popular with Gen Z right now. And I love my Vejas and I will talk about them all the time. Whereas my parents, you know, don't really like talk about brands in the same way or love brands. Whereas Gen Zers, like people love Fenty and will talk about it and post about it and share their content. And so we develop like close relationships with brands and it becomes a part of our own identity. Um, and so I think that what you have is our extremes are more severe. We can really love something or we can like drop it the next day. Right. And rather than just like passively consuming whatever is convenient. It sounds then that marketers must constantly reinvent their messaging wheel. Well, I mean, Patagonia hasn't constantly reinvented their messaging wheel. They said we always stand for the environment, but they've adapted who they are and what they're saying to what's happening today. And I think that that's, and I think Adidas is another great example of a brand that has reinvented itself really, really powerfully and um, made itself so culturally relevant by being ahead of the trends, by standing for creativity, that working with really diverse influencers and creators and expanding this notion of sport um, and including musicians in the conversation around sports, fashion and streetwear and all of these things. And so I think by talking to the people who are setting the trends and setting culture, yes, you should constantly be reinventing yourself, but not your why. Your why should stay the same. The mediums and the folks that you work with to make your why come to life should, yes, pivot because the world is pivoting. Gen X is complaining about subscription fatigue. You know, when it was just Netflix, that was okay. But now there's a fracturing of streaming video, streaming audio. Uh, Pampers will even sell you an IoT diaper as a $60 a month subscription. Does Gen Z feel this fatigue or is it just the way the world works in their eyes? I think it's we're at an interesting age where some of our subscriptions might still be on our parents' plans. You know, some of us are paying for our own subscriptions half and half and some things we don't have to yet subscribe to because we're not old enough to need them because we not, we're not all of us have regular bills yet, et cetera. And so I think it's sort of TBD, if you will. Like I can speak for myself personally. Like I have a number of subscriptions, right? Uh, I, my, you know, I'm on my family Netflix. I'm on my family Hulu, but I personally, and and, and with my Hulu plan that comes, I have my Spotify, Hulu and Showtime all together through my student plan now. So I switched to my own. You know, I have class pass for working out and et cetera, and I pay for that myself. And 
So I have a number of subscriptions and I don't feel fatigued by it yet um, because they're all, I use them all regularly and consistently and they make my life better. I think there will be a point, especially when I have many more regular bills that it will feel more overwhelming that I have all these recurring monthly costs that I might not even be using. I think we will increasingly look for ways to manage those subscriptions and be able to toggle them on and off. But I do think it is the way the world works. Uh, right now, I think the problem is there's not good ways to manage subscriptions across the many subscriptions you have. Uh, but if there is, and I think there will be, because that's where the market is headed, uh, I think we will be okay. Uh, and I think that we are, we accept that this is the way the world works. And I think we're really happy with the products that we have. I think I can't even believe, you know, that when I was in middle school, I used to pay one twenty nine per song sometimes, right? Like, that's crazy to me that I like had to really choose what songs I loved and I paid for it per song. <laughs> and now I can't even imagine in my wildest dreams doing that. Wow. Me telling you a story about going uh, to a store and buying a compact disc must sound like ancient history. To you. Yeah, I mean, it's cra- it is. It is crazy. Right? My parents had their Walkmans and, you know, all these things were like. <laughs> You know, and, and even like the concept of an iPod, you know, that we had when we were like, you had to download songs onto it, specific songs. It wasn't this like, oh, you can play any song at any time. Right. Right. Um, and streaming has just really changed the content game. And I, I, I cannot imagine us reverting away from this model of subscription and streaming as uh, it is the way the world works today. But I do think we will need better tools to manage the many subscriptions that we're going to have. Are Gen Z consumers less likely to go out into the world to get their entertainment now that everything comes to them on a glowing rectangle, or is that just a boomer question? You know, I, I don't have data on this, so I, I don't want to say definitively, um, but I, I would say Gen Z loves a good experience more than a good product. And so I still definitely think Gen Zers are going out uh, places to uh, have great experiences, right, for sure. There's no doubt about it, specifically in the content space. I mean, I think this is why movie theaters are so much better now, right? Like we weren't going to go to those uncomfortable chairs, um, you know, and watch a movie when we couldn't watch so much amazing content from the comfort of our homes. But these nice ass chairs that recline all the way and that you can go on a cute date with and cuddle where your parents not around and et cetera, that is a value add that you couldn't get at home. Um, And so I absolutely think people will be willing to go for experiences where there's a value add that you couldn't get at home. But certainly, yeah, if I can get the better experience right now where I am right now currently, I'm not going to go somewhere else. It's just a matter of giving me something better. And and, and, and then, yeah, it's worth the trek for me. So when a Gen Z consumer needs help, do they call a help desk or are they just satisfied with a chat bot? I hate talking on the phone. I like, I spend so much time on the phone because of my like running this business and talking to my clients and people on my team, especially because a lot of our team is remote. Um, and I, but like, and that's enough on the phone for me as is. But like, I would never, in my wildest dreams, if I had a product problem with a product, call on the phone. Like, never. Like, in no circumstance. I, yes, I prefer a chat box. I prefer an email form, a form on our website, literally anything else. than talking on the phone. Why is that? What well, what's the aversion to talking to a real human? I think so many times the customer service lines that I've called are just. So not helpful. It's like, let me transfer you to this person. Let me transfer you to this person. I just want whoever I'm talking to be able to solve it and to solve it quickly and easily. And I think it's much easier just to type your problem once and then have them go run around and deal with it internally than like staying on the line and waiting for them to figure it out. Right? Like this idea of staying on the line as a problem is solved, like seems impractical and antiquated. Um, And I also think that like there is a sense of intimacy with talking on the phone that like makes us, you feel weird about talking to some stranger in some call center 
sometimes about personal problems with products, you know, like it doesn't fit, you know, or little things like that. Like you just don't want to be talking to someone in person, like person to person about that. It's much easier to be like chatting on a chatbot or filling out a form. Uh, and I think, I, I think we want the ability to call on the phone. I think there's some problems that necessitate that, but by and large, we need those other forms um, and, and formats to, and like Twitter, you know, add it, we, we do that all the time, right? We add the company and the help and then we DM them and, and get things handled that way. Um, and I think that that instant communication and like being able to hear from somebody back immediately, like oftentimes you go on the customer service line, you have to wait for like an hour just to be heard. Whereas I think the instantaneous portion, portion is really important to us. So with that in mind, is privacy dead to Gen Z? Have they just accepted that or is there going to be a pushback? I think kind of. I think, you know, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal happened, I think it was mostly older folks who were alarmed and Gen Z was like, we knew that they were taking our data. Like that wasn't a surprise to us. Like it, it said when you played those weird quizzes, like consent to let the app post for you, right? I think that Gen Z, we don't like that uh you know, companies are misusing our data or selling it or being dishonest about how much they're taking. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's at the top of our priorities list in terms of issues that we care about, right? The mantra is TikTok is free, therapy isn't. We have access to free platforms and TikTok is an incredible case study in using data that they get from just looking at how much we scroll and how fast we scroll and et cetera, and serving up content that is directly personalized and curated to you. Um, with you filling out no questions, answering no questions, you could only have to make an account. And I think that we love things like that, like things that just get, like our phone knows so much about us and it in, in turn should give us content and advertisements and things that we want to see. We want that. We want good content. Um, I don't think we want our companies to be dishonest, but as long as you're, like, your terms and conditions are true, yeah, you know, like you can have my data, right? I'm consenting to it when I click accept. I'm not reading the terms and conditions, but don't lie, right? I, I, I hope the companies aren't being dishonest. And in, in, in exchange, give me something personalized and useful and relevant to me. I don't think I've ever thought that my data was secure on the internet. I, I've known from a very young age that my digital footprint will be massive and that everything that I put out there is in public domain. And I don't know that everyone unilaterally across the board has had that same level of education regarding digital citizenship and et cetera. But I think by and large, is the most adept at understanding the consequence of the digital era because we're constantly in it and we understand that we've seen what's happened to our peers and we all have stories of things that happened to our peers and et cetera. And so while certainly I have concerns sometimes about security uh, and privacy, I don't think they're at the top of any of our minds, like in balance with incredible personalized services and free platforms. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of fixation in like Congress and, you know, big companies around like, you know, privacy with Gen Z and et cetera. And I, and I just don't think that it's particularly that salient or important to us. Pivot a little bit further down that Apple path. You point out that there is a, a walled garden that Apple uh, has that makes it difficult, if not impossible, 
uh, for someone to extricate themselves from that garden. The telecommunications industry that provides the backbone for that little glowing rectangle doesn't have that benefit. And t often the mobile telecom industry lands itself at the bottom of consumer satisfaction lists. Yeah, yeah. What does the mobile telecom industry need to do to keep a young consumer as a subscriber? We work quite a bit with mobile technology companies, mobile te telecommunications companies. Um, so I definitely think about this question quite a bit. I mean, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of Gen Z is on our parents' plans or on family plans. Uh, it was not a choice that we ever made to have the carrier that we have. Uh, we don't have tremendous brand affinity to any one of them. Like the one that I have, I feel nothing about. I have no communication with them. I've never been to the store. My you know, my parents got me my phone and my plan. And um, that's true of most of Gen Z, not all. Obviously, Gen Z is a cash-strapped generation. Obviously, people come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. And some people, many people are supporting themselves. Um, but still, by and large, people are on family plans. Um, and it's not, it was not a singular Gen, like a Gen Zer who made the decision of what carrier to have. And if they did, it was a cost choice, right, for the most part. Um, and, and oftentimes, that is whatever the cheapest one is, whether that's, you know, Sprint or whatever. Um, I think carriers do have it harder than retail and then CPGs and then and technology companies in that it's really invisible. And Gen Z really cares about virtue signaling and signaling something about our politic and who we are by purchasing things and having that show up in our day-to-day -day lives and in our social media and et cetera. But no one sees your carrier. It's invisible, really. Um, and so I think that makes it a harder thing to market and convince someone it's worth switching when you already have, like, it works, right? As long as it works, that's all we really care about. What I'm excited to see, I think, is right now, I don't think people are agitating for technology and telecommunications and social media companies to be ethical or sustainable because we're really focused right now on the small day-to-day -day purchases that we're making because by and large, those are the purchases that Gen Zers are making, right? Because Gen Z, the older generation Z is only 23 or 24. So the purchases that we make most regularly are like going to the CVS and going to the random store and buying those products. And so I think we've pushed that, those industries quite a bit. But I think increasingly we're going to be pushing our telecommunications and technology companies to say, hey, what is your environmental impact? What do you stand for? And I don't think we've really had that conversation yet. We've sort of given those companies a free pass. And I think uh, we'll see and hopefully shift the industry in the next decade uh, forward to say it's not enough just to provide mediocre service. You need to provide a much better product and have a much better why. I wonder about that much better product, you know, with 5G on the horizon for most of us and present for some of us already, you know, that old um, William Gibson line about the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if there's an opportunity for that industry to reinvent itself in the eyes of Gen Z. Yeah. Because 5G is going to offer way more than just a faster Internet connection. Yeah, but I don't think that... Uh Gen Z particularly knows that or cares about that. You mean Gen Z's not too keen on Industry 4.0? My 13-year-old daughter doesn't care? I, I Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I am a 21-year-old CEO of a Gen Z consulting firm who is on my phone and computer and desktop and iPad, you know, all day long and is, you know, plugged in constantly and needs good service. I could not tell you the difference between 4G and 3G or LTE or any of these things. Like, when my phone works, it works, and I'm happy it works, Right. I think a lot of marketing is in, you know, I see in our offices are in Times Square and I was walking in, I see three different companies with these giant 5G billboards. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And I work with telecommunications companies, right? I, I know more than the average consumer, obviously, because I have conversations, but I don't really functionally know 
what it will change. I have some case studies and examples that I know, but I think by and large, your consumer does not know what it will change and doesn't particularly care. I think that uh, people care about cost. People care about mission far more than they do about some branded technology that we don't really quite understand or as long as our phone works, it works. And I think that is what the consumer wants. Um, and I think a lot of time right now is being spent between telecommunications companies fighting over who really has the real 5G and the most 5G. And I think the consumer is sitting here saying like, why are you exploiting me? You know, like why am I getting bills for things I didn't ask for? And why does my signal not work half the time? And what is this, what is this marketing gonna do about that? And I think we're focusing sometimes on the wrong issues by not talking enough to our consumer. Because I think in, in the conversations that I've had with my peers, I don't think any of us are like, you know, you know what I really want my carrier to have 5G. No, what I want my carrier to have is a way that I can cancel my plan through an app. So I don't have to go in the store and wait three hours. What I want my carrier to have is forgiveness. If I, for, you know, if I miss a deadline to pay a bill and so I don't get fined, what I want my carrier to have is a cheaper plan for students. Like those are the things that I think people care about, not some brand of technology that we don't quite understand. One of the things that 5G is going to bring us on mass is this cloud gaming idea that no matter where you are, you'll be able to pull out your, your phone, you'll be able to pull out your switch from Nintendo or sit in on your couch in your house and, and watch something on a big screen TV, play it and then move along with it. Google Stadia, perfect example of that. Uh, I wonder if that's a, an opportunity for 5G to say, here's what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's lots of case studies like that. Like I think that right now, a lot of Gen Zers hate that when we go to concerts, um, you know, our signal gets jammed and we can't post stories over our concerts. And 5G is going to mitigate that issue when installed, in, you know, that in stadiums and et cetera. And so I certainly think there are case studies that are compelling and that will propel us to the future and that people, you know, regarding gaming and regarding cloud technology and regarding, um, you know, not having your signal jammed in congested areas will be transformative. But I think in and of itself saying we have 5G and the other network doesn't, doesn't mean anything to us, right? And I, I think it has to far more be on our network this problem is now solved for. And this marketing should tell that story of the problem that we're solving for, rather than just the name of a technology, if that makes sense. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.